What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Baltimore Guys. I'm your host, Bazil. Our guest today, I'm very excited to have on. He's a musician, but he's more famously known as the race reconciliator. Please welcome Mr. Daryl Davis. Mr. Davis, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I really thank you for coming on, man. So let's just jump into it. We're in some uh, times right now, some turmoil times, I guess you can say. Um, but being up here in Baltimore, um, and the country's focus right now is police and police reform. I mean, you were, um, you're friends with Robert White. Uh, Robert White used to be, uh, the top of the, um, they call it the CEO of racism as a joke going on the internet with that. Right. And, um, he was a Baltimore city police officer. That is correct. So I wanted to see if at any point you two had a discussion of what his mindset was as a police officer, because we obviously understand what his mindset was as a Klan member, but was there any discussion as a cop, particularly Baltimore City? I mean, you still had the riots that happened in the 60s, and then there's riots that are happening now. What day-to-day mindset was of those police officers when they went out on the streets? Yes, uh, he had the same mindset as a police officer as he did as a Klansman. Uh, He and I became very intimate friends and he, he told me a lot of stuff. Uh, he was not the only Klansman on the Baltimore City Police Force. Uh, there are still a lot of racists on the Baltimore City Police Force. And he told me about some of the inner workings there. Uh, basically, the Baltimore City uh, Police turned a blind eye to his activities as long as he did not bring uh, embarrassment upon them. They were okay with it because a lot of them were also of the same mindset and uh, but, you know, when he uh, he he got in trouble um, for uh, the, the synagogue thing and then uh, later the attempted uh, murder, assault with intent to murder two black guys over in Woodlawn, you know, they he uh, they had they had to, uh, to to let him go. But uh, he, go ahead. No, 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 you go continue. Yeah. So uh, he was of the same mindset. Then he told me that uh, he participated uh, with the police in, uh, in those riots in the in the uh, 68, 1968, during uh, the right after the, uh, the aftermath of the King assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not pretty. And uh, he was he told me he didn't start off as being a racist, that uh, as a kid, uh, he had black friends that he played with. Um, and even growing up later on, he had a black neighbor that he, he admired very much. Uh, they all got along. They you know, went to each other's house, sat on the porch and drank beer together and that kind of thing. But he says that uh, the problem is when blacks move, move into the neighborhood, the neighborhood goes to pot or whatever. He said this guy was some kind of exception. And I said, look, Bob, I said, I can take you right now to a lot of white neighborhoods you know, that have gone to pot and there are no black people there whatsoever. Exactly. You know, so I said, you know, it's all, it all depends about, who, you know, who, who raises you, how you're raised, that kind of thing. You know, you put any bad element in a neighborhood, it, it, it can take it down, white or black or anything else. Uh, so, you know, it took me a while to convince him. But because, um, you know, he was a clan leader. He was a grand dragon, which means a state leader here in, uh, in Maryland. And uh, he was a police officer and he would he would do things. Um, for example, before he joined the police, he worked for the, uh, some kind of housing uh, commission or something. And, you know, they were trying to keep 
a uh, an apartment or apartments uh, all white. So he worked in the uh, in the front office, and another Klansman worked in the back office. And how they would do things is, you know, you can't. It was like Section Eight housing or something like that, right? And so you come in and you fill out a form, and then you finish the form, you bring it up to the front desk where where Bob is sitting, and uh, he he will he will go over the form with you with 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 a pen, right? Okay, so um, your name is Joe Smith, right? You say you're right. He checks it off, and then um, you know you make X amount of dollars per year. Yep, check it off. So he's making these little checks, you know, making sure that you've answered all the questions, and then the form goes to the back. Now, the idea is uh, that the person in the front cannot discriminate against you based on the color of your skin because the person in the back is the one, uh, the person in front just, just reviews the form to make sure that you answer all the questions, and then the form is sent to the back. The person in the back does not see you, but checks over the form and based upon your merits on the form or whatever, your qualifications determines whether or not you get uh, the Section 8 housing approval. So um, those check marks on the form indicated to the person in the back that you're black. Because white people, they didn't get check marks. Who just say, you did this? Yeah. You make that? Yeah. Okay, but he didn't put any check marks by the questions. So that's comparable to basically redlining. Exactly, exactly. So that's how he would keep uh, blacks out of these um, out of these uh, Section Eight uh, housing things. And you know, he was telling me all this. Um, there were a lot of there were a lot of other cops who were in the Klan on the Baltimore City Police Force, and also cops who who were not in the Klan but were Klan sympathizers. They had the same uh, mentality. Damn, so it, it goes deep, it goes deep. So how how is it that we can combat that? I mean, I know a lot of this comes to voting and it has to do with the politicians that we put in. And I know that you have said before that uh, regarding Donald Trump, uh, he could be the best thing for this country because he would cause us to break to the point that we would have to unite to mend things together. But Donald Trump is just one man. There's plenty of people that are still in Congress and Senate that have implemented laws that have been detrimental to people of color and minorities in this country that are still playing a role in the background. So how is it that we can combat this, uh, you know, it, basically it's who you know, not what you know, in most right. cases when you're trying to get into situations or get into higher ranking levels and jobs in this country. So how do we combat that to where we get to a point where it's unification and it's it's an equal playing ground? Okay, well, I, I made that statement years ago and I still stand by it, that that he is the best thing that's happened to this country, not through any intelligent design of his own because that was not his intention to bring the country together. Um, he's not that smart to do something like that. Right. But, um, uh, but as you can see, he is breaking the backbone of this country. And people are coming together. You know, we have, uh, I mean, we've always had white people participate in our civil rights marches, dating back to Rosa Parks and uh, on through uh, 1968 with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, but today we have a mass of white people participating. And 
uh, back before when we were, you know, marching with just a few of them, but mostly black, the powers that be were like this. They had their hands over their ears and cotton in their ears because they didn't want to listen to us. They didn't want to hear us. The police didn't want to hear us. The courts shut us down, all that kind of thing. Now today, with this collective of black people and white people, those people are pulling the earplugs out of their ears or else putting in hearing aids because they're listening now. And, and we're seeing things happen, uh, like uh, police officers being, being arrested a lot quicker, being fired a lot quicker, being charged a lot quicker, where these things were not occurring uh, years ago. Uh, even, uh, even last year wasn't occurring years ago. Uh, I mean, that, that quickly. Um, it, would, it would take months. You know, they do an internal investigation, this kind of investigation, and then months before they would either fire somebody or, even, or let alone charge them. Now it's happening almost instantly. And also a ripple effect is happening where the, the protests are geared mostly towards the police in the wake of, uh, of the lynching, I'll, I'll call it a lynching, of uh, George Floyd. And the ripple effect that we've never seen before to this magnitude is statues are coming down. Um, food brands are changing their labels. Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben. Uh, the Confederate flag is being banned from ground zero, NASCAR. Uh, Mississippi is, is, uh, is going to remove the Confederate flag out of their flag out of their main flag. These are all ripple effects. And this is a good thing. Um, taking down the Confederate flag, taking down the statues does not change anybody's mindset. Uh, it just re removes those symbols, which need to be removed anyway. And I'll explain that in a second. Um, but education will change that. And, and this collective of people coming together, will, it will, uh, will stimulate that education and begin to change that through exposure. So it's important for, for individuals to come together and talk with one another, and that will have an effect on the systemic part of this racism, because the systemic part runs very deeply. And it's also a battle to address that. There is no one solution to, to uh, curing all of racism. We have to address it from all facets, from the individual mindset to the systemic mindset, to the institutionalized mindset and to the legal uh, area. Like you said, the people in Congress who pass the bills and make the laws, you know, our lawmakers, they all have to be addressed from different angles. And, uh, but, we, but more importantly, we have to coordinate with one another and cooperate with one another so that we can attack this thing together. And we're seeing that right now in the streets with these people, as, as this collective, because now the powers that be they see people that look like them and they're beginning to listen. So I think, you know, that, that's a good start. But back to what I was saying about the, uh, the statues and, and uh, flags and stuff. Look, the loser does not get to build their statues or fly their flag. We went to war, America, went to war against Great Britain and we beat them, which is why we had a celebration yesterday Fourth of July, our Independence Day. Um, most white people in this country are of English descent. They came here to escape the tyranny of King George III. That's why they came here, so they could worship whoever they want to worship, right? And not the king. And um, 
we beat the British, and the, the white Americans here, the, the majority of the British ones, or, or British descent, they have ancestry that's still over there in, in England. But yet, because we beat them, they don't build statues to King George III out here and fly the Union Jack. We went to war against Japan when they bombed Pearl Harbor. There are plenty of Japanese Americans in this country who have ancestry that participated in that attack on us. But yet Japan lost. They don't build statues to Hirohito and fly the Japanese flag. We went to war against Germany. There are many German Americans in this country or Americans of German descent whose ancestors had to fight in the Third Reich under Adolf Hitler because he was a dictator. You had no choice. You either uh, fought under him or you were exterminated unless you escaped to another country or something, right? Germany lost the war. We do not build statues in this country to Adolf Hitler and fly the swastika. So the Confederacy lost the war. They need to get over it. You do not build statues to the loser. So why should we build statues to Robert E. Lee and all these other Confederate generals and fly the, uh, the uh, Confederate battle flag? You know, they claim, well, you know, they, you know, that's heritage. It's not hate, it's heritage. Well, the South has a lot to be proud of. Slavery is not one of them. And we went, to, you know, the Civil War was fought over slavery. Mm-hmm. We, we said, no, 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 it was, it was fought for states' rights. States' rights to do what? <laughs> to own slaves. slaves. <laughs> you know, exactly. So, you know, stop, stop lying. It was fought over slavery. And uh, there are plenty, like I said, there are plenty of things to be proud of. Slavery was not one of them. So if you really, you know, listen, I was born in Chicago only because my mom and dad were there when I was born. But my parents are from Virginia, Roanoke and Salem, Virginia. Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy. I am a descendant of slaves. My ancestors fought in the Confederacy because slaves had to fight for their slave masters. That, that was it. So I have, I have um, ancestry in the Confederacy. While I honor my ancestors, because without them I wouldn't be here, I do not honor the Confederacy, nor do I honor slavery, obviously. Mm-hmm. So if you really believe that that flag is heritage, and I've told people this, you know, when we have this debate, I said, look here, what do you think of the Ku Klux Klan? Oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not about racism, not that, you know, they're hate mongers, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I go to a lot of Klan rallies. I want you to come with me to a Klan rally. And when you see those people in their robes and hoods walking around with, with your flag, I want, I want you to tell them to give you back your flag because that is not what it stands for. I say, if you will do that, if you will tell them to give you back your flag because it's heritage, not hate, I will come over to your house and I will take your Confederate flag and I will hoist it up your flagpole for you. I have yet to have any takers to go with me. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so I want to step back just a little bit. So regarding uh, a lot of white people coming in um, and assisting during these protests, right? Uh, how much... Uh, seconds. So you might want to back up and I, I didn't hear the question. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. So my question was regarding how uh, white people have joined in the protests and are much more active and much more uh, vocal 
regarding racism. So I work as a cinematographer and I, you know, when, when the riots and protests are happening here, I'm basically in the front lines of that. And my questioning to them is, you know, why now? And, and a lot of them, you know, admit that they're timid and they're scared to come out there because they don't know what to expect, but they feel that it's important. And it is important, but I'm also questioning some, and particularly like these big brands, a lot of the changes that they're making. How much of that do you think is really genuine or how much of that do you think is pandering to save the buck? Because we are in a pandemic. We are in a time where, I mean, things have basically been shut down except for Amazon and Chick-fil-A. So we're like, we need, uh, it, it, how much of, of the, do you think that the companies now, like in the NFL, for example, are they really about bringing about change or is this more about conserving how much money we lose during these times? I think uh, both. I think, though, for the most part, I, I do believe it is about change. I do believe it is about change. But there's always going to be some percentage that is going to, you know, do whatever they have to do to, to, uh, to bring in the money and, um, and self-preservation or whatever, and just, you know, be a chameleon blending with the program in order to, to maintain and, and bring in their business. Um, but I do, I do feel that, uh, that change is coming. And I think, because, you know, here's the thing. We want change. We march for change. We fight for change. We burn down buildings for change. We do all this for change. And then when we see change emerging, we deny it. Now, you, you're just doing that because, you know, you, you don't want any more buildings burned down. Or, you know, I, I don't really believe you. You, know, you haven't proven anything. But, geez, give the guy a chance. Give the company a chance. Let, let them manifest it, all right? And if they don't, then, you know, you, you, you keep on protesting and do something else. But I believe that a lot of people are so used to being denied that they're in that rut when, the, when, the, when, the, when they're finally granted something. They don't want to believe it, you know? Um, and as I said, there is a percentage, you know, that, that does exploit these things in order to, uh, to make money and preserve their, uh, their economics and all that kind of thing. But I do believe for the most part, uh, we are seeing genuine change, um, <clears throat> especially NASCAR. You know, that, that was like ground zero. Uh, very, very few black people would attend those, those uh, races, let alone uh, run in those races, drive those cars in those races. So they had a built-in following, that was their base. They have lost a lot of their following as a result of that change. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, all you have to do is go on the internet. You see some of those comments about, you know, I'm not going to support NASCAR anymore. I went to my last race, blah, 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 you know, so forth and so on. You know, they're race traders, et cetera, et cetera. They have lost a number of people, but yet they're standing by their decision, you know, to, 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 to ban that. So I, I believe that is genuine change. And I believe what we're seeing now is a page turning in our history book. Uh, we know we've turned pages before through Dr. King and some others, but we're seeing another page turn. Um, and it's turning a lot faster than it ever has uh, in the past. I believe that this, this is probably the one, one of the greatest things that has happened uh, in the 20th century, since the 20th century, and certainly the greatest thing so far in the 21st century. I mean, so it's been, yeah, it's been tragic uh, that, you know, 
half the cities across the country have to burn down to make people listen, um, and that you know we're in, we're in the midst of a pandemic, but it's kind of bittersweet. Yes, we've lost you know what 130,000 lives uh, through this coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. That is just ridiculous. It's just crazy, especially since a lot of a lot of that could have been, or at least some of it could have been avoided had certain people listened and not called it a hoax. You know when it was happening, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, that's part of him, you know, breaking the backbone. Like I said years ago, and like I still say. Um, <clears throat> but the 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 sweet part of it is that people could not go to work. Their businesses were shut down. They're on lockdown. So now they got more time to go out into the streets and protest. And those who don't want to be on the front lines or, or walk up and down the streets and all that kind of stuff, they're working behind the scenes on social media, getting the word out or this, that, and the other. So the, the pandemic, p- pandemic allowed people time to get to do this because uh, without that, the crowds would not be as large as they are. Do you think, uh, since you're a, a big history guy, you know a lot about history, you know what has happened in this country, do you think that it is the obligation of Black people to educate? Because uh, you do talk about education, educating white people is what's happened. Because, for example, I have white friends, they had no idea about the Tulsa, Oklahoma bombings. Uh, there's a lot of stuff where it is like, well, I didn't know that happened. You mean the, the Tulsa race riots? Tulsa race riots. Thank right. you. Sorry. Sorry. I apologize. So, uh, actually, Tulsa massacre, right? The race Tulsa, massacre. Yeah, exactly. Essentially. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, the, uh, and, you know, at, at a point, I understand, yeah, uh, maybe it, it's good to enlighten them in that situation. But at the same time, with we're in 2020, I mean, you have a computer in your hand at all times. So, at what point is it personal responsibility to? educate yourself on the matter to get an understanding or or are us as black people we have to just take the initiative and just step up and you know hey look this is what happened this is what you know is going on so you can understand school system they have their curriculum that's not that doesn't give you the whole uh spectrum of what happened in this country during its inception yes i do believe that uh, it is our responsibility to teach people who are ignorant, all right? And when I say ignorant, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean it in a sense of not knowing, being unaware. Um, you know, if one's perspective is one's reality. And, you know, it used to be where if, um, you know, some black guy got pulled out of a car on a traffic stop and for no reason, the cop started beating him with the nightstick and he's telling you know his his white friends, they'll say like, well, well, what did you do? I didn't do anything. The guy just like went off on me. Well, you had to have done something. Well, no. And now they're finding out that these things do happen without provocation. Not every time, but yes, they do. They can and do happen. So it is our responsibility to educate people who are not in the know. You know, we we we've had too much of a. I'm not my brother's keeper kind of attitude. We need to change that. We all are in this boat together. And if there's something that that I know that you don't know that can help you, because if I help you, it helps me. So I'm gonna share it with you. If there's something that I don't know and you see that I I don't know it and you have the answer, help me out, teach it to me. 
regardless of what color I am, what religion I am, whatever. We have to be our brother's keeper because we are in this country together and we have to rely on one another. So people live in bubbles. And uh, if they don't know, they don't know. What one's perspective is one's reality. And yes, you're absolutely right. We, we have our phones on our hand, in our hands. We can learn all kinds of stuff. Um, but how many people are going to just look up randomly out of the blue? Um, you know, I wonder how many uh, Hispanic people have been brutalized by the police or why, you know, they just don't do that. A, because it doesn't affect them. And why would they even think of it? Because to them, the police don't brutalize anybody, you know, because they're not getting brutalized. So why would they think anybody else is getting brutalized? So, yes, we have to inform them, especially being the minority. You know, we're only 12% of the country. So, and, we, and we're the ones who are, who are being um, uh, perpetrated upon by racism. So if you, you, know, if you want to wait another 400 years for them to figure it out, <laughs> more power to you. I don't have that kind of time. Right. You know, I, 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 I feel, point. yeah. So, you know, let's, let's educate one another. Let's find out what it is about black people that they fear. Um, let's find out for, for our sake, what it is, what it is about the um, police, you know, that, that cause us to fear them. You know, we have to understand this and exchange this information with one another. Um, you know, listen, we, we try every time a country is about to go into a civil war with itself, or getting ready to go to war with another country, what do we do? We all, we all of a sudden we intervene and say, hey, let's call a summit. Let's bring this leader and that leader and sit them down and have a, a peace summit and, and see if we can work out some kind of a deal and you know, to, to avert any kind of civil unrest and war or war between two countries. We're always trying to broker some kind of peace, but yet we won't do it within our own country. So we have to turn inwards so I want to elaborate on that because you did bring up my brother's keeper um, in Baltimore. Uh, you know, we're five years, four or five years, 300 plus homicides. Uh, Chicago, where you were born, mm -hmm. uh, Father's Day weekend, there was 100 plus shootings, almost, you know, 20 or, or, or more um, murders on that weekend alone. And my question is, it, 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 I had a podcast where I was asking, I was trying to get an understanding is why is it we put this much effort into having other people, you know, be accountable for what's happened to us, yet we're not putting that same effort on the actions that we're doing towards each other. I mean, about, I think maybe two weeks ago, uh, a mother, uh, a, a, a guy killed his pregnant girlfriend and his three-year-old daughter and you know unless you're locally here i mean there's not really i mean black lives matter isn't coming out here to march for that yet but that's still something that's important because a child was killed and there's so many situations and videos that i've seen where people i mean the guy was walking his daughter two guys come up and shoot the guy while he's walking his daughter. So you're talking about trauma that's going to affect her for the rest of her life. Having seen that, that her father being killed by someone that looks like them and she doesn't even know the reason why. So why, 
how, what what conversations do we need to have with each other regarding that? And I'll reference, you know, uh, your film, Accidental uh, Courtesy with Kwame. I mean, at the end and then also at the um, the post uh, uh, screening, you know, the, the discussion you guys were having, discussion in the film, too, was very heated. And he felt that your methods were very slow. Um, the way he w he was doing things, you know, he he was known for calling out um, uh, what's the guy's name, uh, the guy for CNN calling him out, saying he was only there to cover the Freddie Gray situation, but he's right. not there at the homes and Geraldo. Seeing, right, Geraldo, seeing how uh, the living situation is for Black people are in Baltimore City, um, but he felt that what you were doing was not at all benefiting black people in any way and what his methods were were much more direct or faster and seemed to have a better impact than you are so the disagreement was there and as you as you called it the ignorance was there because neither of you seemed to know what the other side was doing and like didn't well you did you were, you were waiting to to speak but they all left so you know it, it, that that's the what seems to be a common theme is that you know we 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 try and bring a conversation to the forefront but then when one person doesn't agree with the other it's f that person i'm out of here kind of deal. and how effective is that right so how 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 can we bring a conversation to uh the forefront for our communities well actually able to do that with yeah. people who are you know the the, the enemy essentially uh, actually um yeah, you know, uh, an accidental courtesy, you saw about eight minutes of this interaction between myself and Kwame and, and two, other, two other people. Um, to Kwame's credit, he, uh, he, he, he contacted me like about a year later and, uh, and reached out and, you know, wanted to get together and talk and, and bring the other two guys. Uh, one of them was able to make it the older guy. And... Um, we, we got together, we had dinner and we had a good conversation. Uh, in that year's time, uh, they both had seen me and seen what, you know, what I do. Um, and they, while they had a better understanding of what I did, um, we, we agreed on a lot of things. There's some things we disagreed on, but we agreed to work together. And, uh, then, um, I got together with the older guy. And uh, we got along fine there for a while. He invited me to one of his programs or whatever. Is that Mr. And Falk? JC Mr. Falk, Falk, yeah, JC Falk. And um, it was almost like a setup. Uh, he brought me there uh, under the auspices of, of my being a guest and, and relating to the people that, that come to his programs as to what I do and who's going to interview me. And then it, 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 he couldn't handle it. All of a sudden, he, he like reverted right back to where he was in 2016 during the filming and white people got up started one lady he made one lady cry she got up and left and then other people uh, he shut me down wouldn't let me talk and some other white people got up and started leaving uh, he has this program circle of voices something like that Was and that over I, at uh, osi open society institute um no, i don't think it was called osi i forgot now where it was but it's like a little space that people rent they're different okay. rooms. Okay, I got you. I got you. Yeah, got you. and um, and it was almost like you know he was setting me up for something, and he just completely lost it. I started yelling and screaming, and uh, people were getting him and leaving. And I said, you know what? 
you know, I, I, I didn't come here for this. So I, I took my, my uh, clan robes and other stuff that he'd asked me to bring and I, and I left, you know, and I, I, um, I texted him and said, Hey man, you know, you okay. You know, you, know, you want to get together and talk I mean, some, something's going on here. He told me never to contact him again. So, you know, that's fine. I mean, you know, that's, that's his thing. Fine. But here's what's interesting. Uh, back then, he was advocating that it's not our job to educate white people. Well, interestingly enough, this program that he has, we're all white people. <laughs> you know, besides him and me, there was only one other black person there. So he's educating them on, on, um, on, on, on what they're doing wrong with black people. And he's informing them of, of what we have to go through. Well, that's, you know, fine. He's educating white people. The white people I happen to be educating tend to wear robes and hoods. So I'm a little more concerned about them than I am the, the average white person. You know, so what's the difference? What was Kwame's, um, what was your conversation with Kwame like after, uh, when, when he reached out to you for the, uh, after a year? Uh, it was good. Uh, he said, you know, hey, you know, we need to get together and talk. Um, now, he, he had said that he had had too many uh, whiskey sours right, uh, before right. the, uh, the, uh, the uh, thing in, in accidental courtesy. Right. Um, now, you know, if, if you saw the movie, the, the first time I ever met Kwame was filmed right there. It was captured on, you know, on, on the movie. Mm -hmm. It was in the parking lot where this uh, white uh, ex-Baltimore City police officer and I were handing out food Michael to the homeless. Wood. Michael Wood, exactly. And Michael Wood introduced me to Kwame. And the first thing Kwame said to me right there on the film was, you know, I understand you're, you're, you're the first black member of the KKK. Sorry, That's just pure ignorance. There are no black members of the KKK. If there was, there wouldn't be a KKK. So where he got his information, I have no idea, but it was false information. It's, it was information he could very easily have looked up and found out if he knew anything about the KKK at all, he would know it doesn't have black members. So it was a very ignorant statement, but I explained to him that, no, I'm not a member of the KKK. I said, I do get together with those people. I have had many conversations. I sit down, I socialize with them. I try to understand their mindset and help them to learn about who I am, who black people are and others. You know, that's my mission. He goes, oh, he says, I heard you, you have some, some robes and stuff. To, so yeah, I got plenty of those, you know? So he, he was understanding then. And then when we got in the room uh, with the table and JC and- All hell broke loose. Huh? All hell broke loose. Yeah, it was like a, almost like a gang mentality, um, which was, you know, fine. I mean, I, I, I've been doing this long before Kwame was even born. And, um, you know, he, he's a smart guy, but he, but he needs to know a lot more about, about history and also have more patience. Um, but I do, I do respect him and admire him for, for getting together with me, you know, later. And, um, you know, and I said, JC and I got together as well. Um, I was happy to go do JC's program, but like I said, all of a sudden he, he reverted back to who he was and we, you know, we were getting along fine up until then. Um, I've not seen Kwame lately, but uh, I, I still have, you know, good, good thoughts and good memories of him. Um, I appreciated him, you know, reaching out 
and wanting to get together and have this conversation. Because the way I view it is like this. Yes, you know, these guys were upset and called me every name but my own. You know, you, you only saw eight minutes in that film. That whole scenario went on for just over an hour and it reached the point where they wanted to go outside and fight me, you know? And it, it, got, it got very nasty um, on, on both our parts, you know? But uh, the thing, you know, they, they could not handle it that I had clan robes uh, and things. And, you know, I, I should be out there marching against the police and so forth and so on. Well, how many police uniforms have they collected? I brought one there with me, Bob White's police uniform, who was the Grand Dragon of the Klan, as a police officer who conspired to bomb a synagogue and murder two, two black people with a shotgun. Um, I have his police uniform from Baltimore City Police Force. How many police officers on the force have they turned? So you know, that's my question. Um, can you talk about how, I guess, explained, so I guess black people in particular can get a better understanding as to how much converting someone of that much hate actually does save uh, not only a black person's life, but a minority's life, like a Jewish life or a Hispanic life Sure. Uh, regarding this? You know, when, when one person changes, and I don't want to say that I converted anybody, the media says that. I, I don't say that. Uh, I say that I am the impetus for their conversions. They converted themselves. I simply give them food for thought and plant seeds and nourish those seeds and let them arrive at the conclusion, hey, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. I, I need to change my path and direction and get and get get out of this mess, out of this ideology. That's what you know what what I've been doing. Um, you know, but everybody else says, you know, Daryl Davis, a black musician, converts X number of Klansmen. No, I didn't I didn't even convert one. They converted themselves. And yes, when when one does convert or change, it changes a generation. It may be slow moving, but you know what? So is cancer. And if somebody tells you, um, hey, Basile, you know, uh, you're in the beginning stages of, uh, of lung cancer, and, you know, we're going to have to do uh, six weeks of radiation followed by four weeks of chemo, you know, ten, so you're going to be out for 10 weeks. You can't say, I, I don't have time for that, man. I need something now. <laughs> Forget it, man. You got to be patient. And um, if you're not, the cancer will take you out. So racism is a cancer. There is no overnight cure. You know, you, you have to cure it over time with, with certain, you know, strategies and protocols. And, system, you know, and racism is a multifaceted thing. My thing is working with individuals. Their thing is working with the systemic stuff, which is great. It all needs to be addressed. And how I describe it is, it's like this. <clears throat> if you have a domestic uh, dispute, between a husband and a wife next door, right, in the house next door to you. And you look out your window and you can see in their window and you see them yelling and screaming and throwing pots and pans at each other, you call the police. Usually it'll be two uniformed police officers who show up and they knock on the door, go in, take the wife to one room, other one take the husband to the kitchen or whatever, and they get the stories and then they come back and compare them and tell them, hey, look, you know, you all gotta calm down, keep the peace, Otherwise, if we come back, whoever is messing up is going to jail, or you both are going to jail, right? And that's the end of it. 
But also, there are other situations which we hear a lot about also, where some husband has lost his job or got traumatized somehow, and now he's all been out of shape. He's home. He's got. He's holding his wife and kids at gunpoint, and and we we heard about it. You know where he shoots the kids, shoots the wife, and then nine out of ten times he turns the gun on himself. So you having to see that, so you call the police and say, look, you know my my neighbor has gone crazy. He's holding his wife with, and kids at gunpoint. So now it's not just those two uniform officers who come out. They'll come. But they don't go up to the house. They stand back with the bullhorn and start yelling, you know, hey, you know, let, you know, let your kids out or whatever. Um, but another faction of the police come. They're called the SWAT team. And they're at the front door. They're at the back door. They're peeping in the side window. They might even drop down from a helicopter on top of your roof. You know, they got the whole house surrounded, right, with sharpshooters and everything else. And then there's another person from the police department. He's on the phone calling you. And say, hey, look, you know, we can get you some help. Just let one of your kids go. Let your wife go. You know, we'll, we'll take care of you. Blah, blah, blah. Hostage negotiator, right? Each one of these people has a specific job to do. And they are in constant communication with all the other ones. The two uniform cops with the bullhorn, the, the hostage negotiator, the SWAT team, they all are communicating with one another. Whoever seems to be working, everybody else supports that person or that entity, that, that team or whatever. If the, if the negotiator says, hey, you all hold off. I think I think I got him. He's gonna let one of the kids go. You know, put your guns down out there. And the, the front door opens and one kid comes out. Everybody goes with this negotiator. He's on, he, he's on a roll, let him do his thing. Let's back him up, right? If the sharpshooter says, hey man, you know, I got, I got a bullseye on his forehead and I can take him out without hurting anybody else. Guess what? That guy is gone, done. All right, whoever, whoever ha has the best um, vantage point to, to bring safety to that mother and her kids, that's who they go with. And that's the, that's the problem with us. We don't cooperate with one another because we all think that we're right. And there's only one way to go and it's my way. And we, we gotta stop that. We gotta work with each other coordinate and cooperate, and that will get the job done. If your thing is working systemically, great, I'll support you. But support me in, in what I do with individuals, because guess what? The system does not run by itself. It's individuals who run the system and make it systemic. So if I can get them before they get into the system, that will also change the face of the system. You're dealing with somebody who's, who's already in the system, let me work with people who also are in the system individually, because it's hard to change a group mentality. You know, you try to go talk to the police as a whole, they're going to stand strong. All right. You remember um, when uh, those, uh, those, those cops pushed that, that older white guy down, he yeah, banged his know, head on, on the Buffalo, sidewalk? Right. Yeah, in Buffalo, exactly. There were 57 of those guys. And they all were going to walk past him, not even give him time of day. He's on the ground, unconscious, bleeding. That one officer went to bend over. Bend over and they yeah. they pff, right. took him. Okay? Get your ass back. Get your ass back. Exactly. All right? You think you could talk to that whole group and convince them of anything? You think parading up and down in front of their department, yelling in a bullhorn is going to change their mentality? No. But if you've got them one-on-one, -on -one, like you and I talking right now, 
like like me and some, and some grand dragon or imperial wizard are talking face to face, just the two of us. That's when that's when change occurs. So right? that that one guy who bent over, mm-hmm. if, if you could get him and 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 pull him aside and talk to him, you might find a human being in there. But that that group mentality is very hard to change. That's why. But I'm not saying I'm not saying you shouldn't try. Absolutely. But we all have to coordinate and do our individual things together, coordinate and cooperate. So do you think that the protests, the way that they're being conducted now is actually productive? Or do you think there's a different approach than we should do? Because when you see how these protests are happening, um, they they do highlight some peaceful ones and I'll get to the media in a second, but um, there's a lot of like combativeness and, you know, you see situations and sparks where something, you know, someone throws something in that's, you know, lights where it's on. Um, do you think that the, uh, how would you say the, the way protests are being conducted today are, 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 you know, or what can be improved? Okay. Um, one of the problems that I see is this. Take a Black Lives Matter, for example. Black Lives Matter is not an organization. It is a movement. You know, you don't pay dues. In other words, that, that's an organization, you pay dues and so forth. All right. The, the idea behind Black Lives, Black Lives Matter was a fantastic idea. The idea was to put the national spotlight on the plight of, uh, of black men who for lack of, of, of any other uh, description were being murdered by white police officers where they got to go to their grave and white men in the same predicament either went home or went to jail. And some of them going to jail went to jail via Burger King, right? The national spotlight needed to be on that. And that idea came from Martin Luther King because Rosa Parks was not the first black woman who refused to give give up her seat on the bus. There had been others, but that did not make the national news. It was only around Montgomery, Alabama that people knew about that, right? So Martin Luther King came up with the idea, you know, we can put the national spotlight on this and put Montgomery in a fishbowl. People see this, it will stimulate things to change. And he was right. And that was effective. So Black Lives Matter used that same approach to put the spotlight on black men who were, you know, being murdered, uh, where white men were being arrested or going home or whatever. Um, the problem that I, that I think I have with it is I realized the founders did not want to centralize. They just wanted it to be organic but I think that they did not realize at the time how big it was going to mushroom. It became phenomenally big. And now you've got, you know, 80, 90 different groups called calling themselves Black Lives Matter all over the country. You could walk out right now and start your own Black Lives Matter group. I could do the same. A white person, an Asian person, Hispanic person could do the same also. All right. Um, The problem is, that the groups are not on the same page. You know, they're not centralized, like say the NAACP or the Boy Scouts of America or the Red Cross. These are central organizations 
where policy is created right there at headquarters and then disseminated to all the other chapters around the country so everybody is on the same page. Black Lives Matter does not have that. So you got this Black Lives Matter group that I, I know some who are like black supremacists. There's some Black Lives Matter people who are anti-Semites. Right? And then there are those who want to work politically and, and do things you know, the right way and you know, get their stuff out there that way. There are others who want to be aggressive in your face, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was a chapter uh, out of Detroit and, and one of the uh, chapters in New York City have contacted me and said, hey, you know, do you give um, our workshops? You know, can you teach us how to do what you do? We really admire what you do. This, these are two Black Lives Matter chapters. And then there are others who just ripped me apart, you know, as you, as you saw in, in the film. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and the thing of it is, is when, when Black Lives Matter does something, especially something negative, they, the media does not say, well, you know, the, the Buffalo chapter of Black Lives Matter or the Baltimore chapter of Black Lives Matter or the Detroit chapter, or the Los Angeles chapter, they just say Black Lives Matter. So it paints the whole thing with a broad brush so the general public thinks that this Black Lives Matter chapter in Baltimore is the same as the one in, in Los Angeles. They don't even know each other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's too many chefs in the kitchen right. because each one has its own little leader. And depending upon what page they're on, you know, nothing gets done. If we, if we could, if, if the uh, founders had trademarked the name and centralized it, we would be a lot stronger. And I think this, this, uh, this protest thing would be a lot further along because, you know, they're getting flack here, but they're not getting flack there, you know, this kind of thing, because they're, they're not conforming. And you need some kind of uniformity and conformity in a, in a protest if you, want, you know, if you want to get the job done. But they are dividing themselves. So, okay, so how, now, now I, I have a question that I want to get to this media one because this one's bothering sure. me. But the media, I've worked in media. I worked on a TV show for Showtime. I'm not mm -hmm. going to say a name, but it was a political show. So everyone okay. narrowed it down there. And you could just see the agenda that was being pushed during the uh, during filming, during whatever. Like you could just see what was going on, and a lot of situations, like for George Floyd, uh, a lot of people. That's very hard. That's very gruesome and gory to watch. Um, there's shootings that happen that they broadcast on national TV of these police shootings. Mm -hmm. And which sparks this outrage and, in my opinion, division that starts. Yet there's other police shootings where you have to search online that have happened that the news media just will not showcase at all. And there's uh, plenty of other situations that the media, you know, they propaganda wise, in my opinion, just want to highlight as opposed to others. So can you talk about how much responsibility the media has in I guess you can say dividing the country because we do like to lump uh, Trump into a lot of this stuff and, you know, very rightfully so, but like it, Trump has only been in four years. There's right. been situations where this has been happening uh, continuously. And for some reason, sure. you know, we, we, we let that pass by. So, uh, and we have, we need to have a scapegoat, I guess you could say. So can you talk about the media's responsibility in creating this divide and how they showcase certain things like you were misrepresented as you stated earlier? 
Yeah, sure. You know, they don't showcase me a lot, uh, you know, bringing Klansmen out every now and then, you know, they will do something like that. And you're right about these uh, police shootings. Some they, um, they, they publicize and popularize, where others they don't. I feel that the media does have a responsibility to show the news, to show the news. Uh, news shows today, or, or what is called the news, boils down more to opinion. You know, because if you watch um, an hour of MSNBC and you watch an hour of Fox News and they're talking about the same thing, you will swear that you are living in two different countries. And because these are opinions. And to me, it's almost as though you are assuming that the general public is stupid and they, can't, they cannot draw their own conclusions. So you have to uh, guide them along by steering them in whatever direction you want them to go, or whatever direction you think is, is, the, uh, is the proper way. Um, back in the days of Barbara Walters and Walter Cronkite and um, Huntley and Brinkley and these people, you were getting the news and you made up your mind, oh, well, I think you know, that, that person's an idiot, or I think that person is, is a good uh, politician, or he's going to do the right thing, whatever. Today, you're being told, uh, you, know, e you know, even about Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump did not invent racism. You know, people said the country became more racist after Obama. Obama did not invent racism either. Neither did Bill Clinton or, or George Bush before him. Um, or other way around, well, Clinton came after Bush, but none of those people invented racism. But the the uh, the uh, the news, the media will try to steer you towards one person or another person, and the current administration that we have right today does steer the pot, for sure, and and, and steers up that base because you know they will not listen to various sources; they're they're being told what to believe and how to believe it. And, um, and that's what we're dealing with. So yes, the media does have a responsibility to show it all, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the shameful. And we all have it, whether it's black or white or anything else. I, I believe that the media is called upon to show it all and let people make up their own minds, but also explain what is behind some of these things that are happening whether it's pure racism or whether it's poverty, because the same things happen in, um, in poor white communities that happen in poor black communities. And, and there are plenty of examples of that. And they're all, and you know, it's like, it's like welfare, for example. Um, there are more white people on welfare than there are black people on welfare in this country. Blacks only make up 12% of the country. And another thing that the media is avoiding talking about, which is a fact, is this. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, black people made up 12% of this country. Native Americans made up 1%. Uh, Hispanic, Latino people, 2 and 3%. Asians, 4%. So white people were like 84, 86%. White people of a supremacist type mindset, their biggest nemesis were black people at 12%. That's way too much. You know, they figure Native Americans, 
They're only 1%. Let's just put them on a reservation, forget about them. That was the attitude, all right? We got to deal with these 12% black people before they get out of control. So today, we have not grown. Black people remain 12%. Native Americans remain 1%. Um, Asians are now up to like 6%. Hispanics have surpassed us. They're now at 17%. So if you just take, just take 12% black people, 17% um, Hispanic people, that right there alone, let alone the uh, Asians or anybody else, that right there is 29% non-white. Now, this country was built on a two-tier society, white supremacy and slavery. And as we progressed through the years, we progressed like this. We did not progress like this. These people are not gonna come down and help those people up. When these people try to get up, these people push them back down, all right? But now, through immigration and all that kind of stuff, we are seeing this happen. What the media does not talk about is this. It's very well predicted. Look at the census uh, reports every four years or so. By 2042, which is 20 years from now, this country, for the first time in history, will be 50% white and 50% non-white. With me? All right, for the first time in history. And shortly thereafter, it's gonna flip. And for the first time in history, this country will be a minority white. Now, there are plenty of white people in this country who embrace that. Say, hey, it's evolution, that's what happens. I welcome it, no problem. But there's also a percentage of those people who are becoming disconcerted with that idea and they're becoming unhinged. Because when you have sat on the, on the throne of power for 401 years, you do not want to get off, all right? Nobody wants to give up power when you got it. So now they're seeing their throne legs being whittled down and, the, and their butts are being lowered down to the level of the inferior people. They don't want to go down there. So that's why all these groups are springing up all over the place. It used to be just the Ku Klux Klan and then the White Citizens Council. Now you got the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazis, the white power skinheads, the alt-right. You got all these different groups, right? And they're all recruiting. And they're saying, you know, we're going to take our country back. You know, we're going to build that wall. We're going to get rid of these immigrants. Come join us. We're going to take our country back. So they're all concerned about that. What the Klan and, and Nazis are telling me, Daryl, I, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America. They also call it white genocide through miscegenation. Right. right? right. That's what they're worried about. The guy you were talking with in an accidental courtesy who was stating that uh, he doesn't want his kids to be mixing up with. Uh, yeah. With, uh, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a major concern because they see the, their, their white populace decreasing. You know, um, Trump pointed out the same thing. He, he called um, uh, African countries shitholes. And, and then what did he say? Why can't we have more people here from Norway? I've been to Norway. A lot of white people there. Okay. He, he's telling you, and that is, that is fueling his base. He is pandering to their fears 
because the landscape is changing. All right, it used to be, let's say I'm a, I'm a white guy, right? And so in the morning I get up and go to my porch to get my newspaper. The guy across the street, he's getting his paper. He looks just like me. This lady over here, she looks like me. That person there looks like me. I go out and mow my back lawn, the guy behind me looks like me. Next year, same thing. He looks like me, she looks like me. She looks a little different, but he looks like me. So it's only one person, I'm gonna worry about that. Next year, two people don't, you know, don't look like me. And sooner or later, I'm the only one who looks like me in the neighborhood. So I moved to another neighborhood where everybody looks like me. That's called white flight, right? And I just keep moving, keep moving. But guess what now? There is nowhere else you can move where everybody's gonna look like you. Because every neighborhood here has somebody who does not look like you. Mm-hmm. And that the landscape is changing. And that's what they're concerned about. So when these groups say, come join us, you know, you know we, we fell asleep and let a black guy get in the White House, you know, never again, wake up white people, all that kind of stuff, come join us, we'll take our country back. Um, people, people are fearful and they go and join these groups. But when the group does not uh, take the country back, they figure, you know what? If the Klan can't do it and the neo-Nazis can't do it, I'll do it myself. And that's when they walk into that black church in Charleston, boom, 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 boom. Or into the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, boom, 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 boom. Or the uh, Walmart in El Paso, boom, 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 boom. These are called lone wolves. Now, there are intelligence agencies in this country, FBI, different ones, who have agents who can infiltrate these groups. They look just like those people. They join, they, they, they spew the rhetoric, all that kind of stuff. You know, they're undercover. They, they, uh, they, get, they gather intelligence, they report it back, and they foil these plots. But it's impossible to infiltrate a lone wolf. It's only one person. How do you get inside one person? You can't. And so as we get closer and closer to 2020, I'm sorry, to 2042, unfortunately, we're going to see more and more lone wolves because these people are becoming unhinged. And this is why every time one of them gets busted and their, and their house gets uh, raided, they find a whole cache of uh, automatic weapons. Mm-hmm. This is for the race war that they've been predicting. Uh, they call it Rahoa, R-A-H-O-W-A, Rahoa, which stands for racial holy war. Uh, and they also call it the Boogaloo. So since the Boogaloo, the Boogaloo. Yep. Oh boy. Yeah. So, so to, to speak, you know, the nickname, you're the race reconciliator and the word race itself. Uh, I believe it wasn't until the colonial times. That's when the divide of race was used as far as like class and like this, this race of white people and black people. And to quote Jane Elliott, you know, she's a big, She's a friend of mine. Right. I, 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 I already knew that by just, you know, just saying, mm-hmm. you know, Jane Elliott. I love uh, Jane. Yeah. She's, you know, there's only one race. There's a human race. That's right. And do you think that that is something, too, that we need to, I get, I, I assume, abolish the, the, the word race? Because it's been used so long and everyone knows the word race as a divisional thing. Um applications you see it well what race are you black african-american non-hispanic white whatever the case may be is that something that you think would be beneficial for us 
moving forward to help progress this movement as a, a, a as a, a country to i guess abolish the word or in some form or fashion uh you know fix what the, this word has been representing for so long yes we need to fix what the word rep is representing there's only one race as you put it the human race absolutely this uh, black race white race that is a man-made construct uh unfortunately not enough people are, are educated enough to know that um and you know and when you tell them that they don't believe you because they've always used it for so long we are we are all the same race you know and there you know and there are sub subsets of that race things like that and and some other things that we need to redefine is the word pride or proud same word um you hear people say i'm proud to be black you know white pride i'm proud to be white i'm proud to be jewish that is a crock of bull spit i cannot say that i am proud to be black nobody can say they're proud to be white nobody can say they're proud to be jewish or jewish pride or black pride whatever those are misnomers all right we can say i'm not ashamed of being black i'm happy to be black i'm glad to be black and a white person can say the same thing or a jewish person but the original definition of the word proud or pride is the feeling that is derived from accomplishment all right if you won the 10k marathon you can be proud of that all right um i wrote a book that was published i'm proud of that accomplishment i'm proud that i have a college degree i accomplished that that's my pride i did not accomplish the color of my skin my parents did that so they can be proud of me they created me a jewish person is only jewish because his mother is jewish so he can't say i'm proud to be jewish he can say i'm not ashamed of it absolutely so we should we should respect one another as human beings first and foremost as the baseline but if you want to you know if you want to be proud of something accomplish something do something with your life and then people will respect you more because they should respect you right off the right off the top as a human being but then when you do things that respect meter goes up because you become an exceptional human being or a better human being or the or the meter goes down you become a criminal a child molester a rapist a murderer you know then you have a lot more disrespect we respect people first as a human being and the more respect you have for them uh, determines about what they do and uh, or less respect and the, and they can be proud of those accomplishments you can't walk around saying i'm proud to be white well, what did you do you, you didn't do a damn thing watch every wow what are you proud of you know and same thing with black we need to redefine that just like we need to redefine the word race and 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 tell it for what it is uh, everybody has something to give everybody has something to learn and and no no one group is uh, is any exception to that so i think you know that would be a start to uh, to reeducate and redefine these terms so speaking of education i mean and to kind of wrap things up what what do you think education wise and like just community wise we need to do um as far as black people to help uh build and grow um just you know because uh, uh, i feel like we we have uh, we're relying too much on you know other people to i guess you could say fix our issues 
but I feel like we, if, as you said, we just need to coordinate and communicate. Um, what can we do as far as education wise, you think, and, and uh, to improve and, you know, improve the dialogue and improve the knowledge of self? Okay. Uh, two things. Um, Black History Month. All right. I've been saying this now for 22 years. And there are people who agree with me, people who disagree with me. And you I get and Morgan it. Freeman. Yeah, me and Morgan Freeman. We, we're, we're on the same page. I've been saying it longer than he has. Um, we need to get rid of Black History Month. And, and why I say this is because there was a time when we needed it. Absolutely. No Black history was being taught in schools. What was being taught was called American history. And for all practical purposes, it may as well have been called white history, because that's exactly what it was. Uh, white people were being given credit for places they did not discover and for things they did not invent, all right? And we were being left out. We had to fight hard, very hard, for a long time, and we were finally given one week. It was called Negro History Week. Uh, Carter G. Woodson put that together. He was responsible for that. Um, we fought even harder. And over time, we got finally one month. I was in junior high school when that, when uh, Black History Month uh, came out. All right. Now, we needed that. No question about it. Because there was no Black history in the books of, of any significance. So we got February. Now, you know, they're not going to give us everything all at once. You know, they dole it out little by little. So we got February, which by no coincidence was the shortest month of the year. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we accepted February because two of our heroes were, that was their birth month. Um, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were both born in February. So we accepted that. The problem is this. Every February, we learn about the same half a dozen black people. Not to take anything away from those people, those were some of the greatest icons in our history. Let's say Martin Luther King, um, Harriet Tubman, Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, Rosa Parks, and two or three other ones. And by the time we get through half a dozen, oh, you know, February's over, you know, we did our black thing, let's move on, you know, and we move on. And we never revisit what we learned in February throughout the rest of the school year. But yet we learn about Benjamin Franklin, Eli Whitney, Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Francis Scott Key, all year long. It's constantly being reinforced. We never forget who flew the kite and the lightning hit the key, and now we have electricity. We all know Ben Franklin, all right? But you ask some little kid in June when he's finishing the school year before he moves up a grade. So who was Harriet Tubman? Oh, yeah, 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 I remember her, yeah, yeah. She was that black lady who refused to give up her seat on the bus. They got her confused with Rosa Parks because there is no reinforcement. And then guess what? Next year, when he goes into fourth grade, and again, when he goes into fifth grade, and all the way through 12th grade, he's still learning about the same half a dozen black people. What about the guy who invented the traffic light, the gas mask, the person who invented the ironing board? 
oh, well, we didn't have time to, to, to learn about them. I mean, we only have 28 days. You know, there are hundreds, hundreds, thousands of black people who have contributed to the history of this country, other than they're just those six. I'm not taking anything away from those people at all. But if we took that information that we teach in Black History Month, take it out and put it under where it belongs, the umbrella of American history, and teach it all year long, not just one month, teach it the same way we teach about Ben Franklin and everybody else. Then there's reinforcement, and we have more time to include Garrett Morgan and, and you know, C.J. Campbell and, and you, know, every, you know, Ida B. Wells and whoever else. That's what we need, okay? But we became, we, Black people, we became complacent, and we stopped fighting. And so now we're relegated to this. So now what's happening is this. Um, little Black kids and little white kids are subliminally being taught that there were only a half a dozen black people in this country who ever did anything. They never heard of Garrett Morgan or anybody else. They heard about those six though. You know, even if they got Harriet confused with Rosa, they still know those six. That's why we need to put that now because now it's become detrimental. You know, we need to expand our history just like this. When I, you know, I, I can look at you and tell you're a young man. <laughs> I'm older <laughs> you than you. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you, you see, you don't remember when, uh, when uh, black women were not allowed to compete in Miss America, do you? I, I know that. I don't you know remember that, see? that I wasn't there. But yeah. Right. I was. I was. I, and I'm only 62. So I'm not really that old. Right. So I do remember it. And uh, it was just relegated to just white women. And there are only two categories the swimsuit and, and the evening gown. They, they paraded in, uh, up and down this runway in front of uh, some white judges, white male judges, no female judges back then. And, and, and women did not have talent. You know, they weren't re required to write an essay or show any kind of talent. Or they, were, uh, they were sexually objectified in their bathing suit and their evening gown. So black women were not deemed beautiful enough to compete. They, the uh, pageant did not want white men judging the beauty of a black woman. So what did this do for black women uh, back in that day? It gave them low self-esteem, made them feel ugly because they could not become Miss America. You know, they, they were not good enough. So what did we do as black people to uplift and elevate their self-esteem? We created the Miss Black America beauty pageant, right? To give them something to aspire to. And that worked. You know, they, they were getting crowned and so forth and so on. Finally, the big one, the real one, Miss America, finally opened its doors to any American woman, regardless of the color of their skin, as long as they were an American female. So when that happened, since that time, we have had several Miss Americas who are black, starting with Vanessa Williams and Debbie Turner, and then I forgot the other girls' uh, names. Um, but so now that Miss America has come to its senses, we no longer need Miss Black America. We, you know, this is the main one. When are we going to come to our senses with American history and put us in there where we belong? Obama was the first black uh, president of this country so what are we going to do with him? 
just uh, talk about him only in February from here on out. Put him in the February box because he's part of black history. Don't talk about him in, in September. <laughs> he belongs in February. How crazy is that? This country is behind the times, man. We are so concerned with um, the color of someone's skin or their religion. Look, we call ourselves a first world country. In 2008, for the election, we had what? We had a female, we had a black man, we had a Mormon, among other people who were running. Right, candidates. I don't, huh? Candidates. Candidates, exactly. Presidential candidates. Uh, Clinton, uh, Romney, and Obama. And I don't care what channel you turned on, Fox, MSNBC, CNN, whatever, all day long, you turn on the news, the discussion was, can a woman be president of the United States? Can a black man be president of the United States? Can a Mormon be president of the United States? Who cares what somebody's gender is or, or, or uh, color is or their religion? I just want somebody who can run this country. You know, we had the same thing happen when uh, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy was running for president. We had never had a Catholic president before. And, oh, yeah, I don't know if I can vote for a Catholic. You know, can, can a Catholic you know, really be president? What is all this fear, right? There are third world countries that we call third world countries who have female presidents. Right. They got female prime ministers. Right. Okay? So how is it that we may be technologically more advanced than they are? We send people to the moon. But ideologically, they are far more advanced than we are. They don't care if their president or prime minister is a female or a male. They want the best person for the job. And that's where we need to get. And that's why it is our responsibility to educate each other. With that, now, I, 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 I got to add one more thing before you go. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. Yeah. My second, my second uh, soapbox here is... Uh, or our religious institutions, churches, synagogues, etc. Here's a problem. And I'm a religious person, or I'm a spiritual person, whatever you want to say, I was a deacon in my church at one time. Um, whether you're Jewish, you're Mormon, you're Protestant, you're Catholic, whatever, you have some form of Sunday school for little kids who go down in the basement of your synagogue or your church and on Sunday mornings and they have a little Sunday school and while the adults are upstairs in the big congregation. These little kids are taught in Sunday school, we are all God's children. God made a rainbow of different colors. God loves us all. I heard that when I was a kid, you probably did too, right? right? So this is what we believe because as little kids, we're sponging information. Right? We, we, that's what we absorb. And then, you know, when we get to a certain age, you know, 12, 13, or whatever, you know, we move upstairs to the, uh, to the main congregation with the adults. And guess what? The preacher, the pastor, the reverend, the minister, the rabbi, whatever you want to call the clergy, they stop teaching that Sunday school lesson. They are no longer teaching, we're all God's children. God made a rainbow. All right? What would happen if they were to say, 
a Jewish rabbi would say, hey, you know what? It's okay for Jews to marry Catholics or Jews to marry Protestants. Or some white Baptist minister says, you know what? It's okay for, for you all to go out there and, and date, you know, black boys and girls or get married to a black He's Half the congregation. Huh? Exactly. He would get fired out of that church or, or, or half the congregation would leave. All right. But one thing's for sure. When that collection plate comes around, nobody's going to be putting money, money in there right. because you don't pay for things you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. All right. You know, if, if, if I told you, hey, um, there's a uh, concert going on, you know, o- over there at the Baltimore Civic Center and, um, you know, Joe Blow is playing over there. It's only 50 bucks a ticket. You want to go? You're like, uh, I, I, don't, I, I never heard of him. So why, 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 why would I pay $50 for a ticket to hear something I don't know anything about, right? You're not going to pay for what you don't know or, or for what you don't want to hear. So the preacher or the clergy person is only talking to the congregation, telling them what they want to hear. And that way, that's why the collection, the, the plate gets full. That person is not practicing their religion, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, or whatever, all right? That person is putting money above morality because we all know that we are are all God's children. We may worship God in different ways, but we're still God's children. And... Why do we have a white Baptist church and a black Baptist church? Because the black Baptists couldn't get inside the white Baptist church right. back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. But yet we, we use the same King James version of the Bible. We preach to the same God. We, we worship the same God and same Jesus Christ. And so now eventually the Southern Baptists did issue an apology about 15, 20 years ago. They apologized, but we still have the separate churches. So you go to a, a uh, say I'm a black person, right? I go to a white Baptist. Say, hey, you know, um, do you accept me as, as, as your brother in Christ? Oh, yeah, of course, man. Give me a big hug, right? So he accepts me as his brother in Christ because we both are Baptists. We both believe in Jesus Christ. We both use King James Version of the Bible. And then I say, yeah, but do you accept me as your brother-in-law if your sister wants to marry me? <laughs> right. a different story there. Different story. Well, you know, Mr. Davis. <laughs> right, exactly. Different story. You know, I, um, so our, our religious institutions, they are the biggest educators as, along with our schools. Every kid goes to school unless they're being homeschooled. And that's the same thing. You don't pay for what you don't want to hear. If you put your kid in school and that school is not teaching your kid what you want, you snatch him out and put him in another school. Take him and put him in a private school. If they're still not teaching him, you're not going to waste your money. You're going to snatch him out and homeschool him. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the church. If, if the minister is not preaching what you want to hear, you don't put the money in the collection plate. So we need to have these preachers, and, and I, I'm just using that generically, clergy people, you know, step up to the plate, regardless of whether they get excommunicated or, or their congregation leaves or whatever. Step up to the plate and do what is morally right. Teach the people, adults, that same 
um, Sunday school lesson that they learned downstairs when they were that age. Because what happens is this, the kid, the 13 year old or whatever, um, he goes on through high school and now he is um, a senior in high school. And so he's gonna go to senior prom. So let's say um, he's Jewish. And so it's getting time for senior prom and his mom says, so, uh, so Johnny, you know, who, who are you taking to, uh, to senior prom? And Johnny says, I'm going to take um, uh, Kelly O'Donnell. Oh, well, you know, you know, Kelly's a nice girl. Um, she, she's very nice, very sweet. But, but don't you think you, you should take uh, maybe, maybe Molly Greenberg, a, ni a nice Jewish girl? Uh, well, uh, well, but mom, I, I, I thought we were all God's children. Yes, we are. But, <laughs> the but comes out. Now, but is not a biblical word. God didn't have any buts, any, ex any exceptions to the rule. But is a man-made word. And, that, and that's the problem, because these, these clergy do not continue that Sunday school lesson. Mm -hmm. And so now you, you, are, you, are, you are telling your kid he should take somebody else who is not of that faith or of that color or of that whatever. And I was just using that as an example, not to say that all Jews do that, all Catholics do that. I'm just making an example there. That is a problem. Schools are where you learn stuff. Churches are where you learn stuff. Everybody has respect for education in, in the academics, in the school, and also in their, in their religious institution. So they need to step up to the plate, regardless of what the parents may think. Listen, if the parents knew it all, they wouldn't need to send their kid to school. All right. So, uh, you know, sex education came in, came into schools when I was in, um, in school. And, and when I was in school, oh man, it was, it was big taboo. You know, parents were going crazy about, about sex education possibly being introduced in the schools. Think of it. It was, they didn't want to teach their kids at home about sex. They didn't want the schools to do it. Well, guess what? The kids are going to learn it anyway. Right. And where are they going to learn it? Out in the street, the wrong way. And you're going to be a grandpa before your time. Right. right? So when, when sex education came to school uh, here in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, you had to have a note, a note from your parents saying, it's okay if, uh, you know, you know, little Johnny has uh, Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so's permission to take this, uh, this course in sex education. It was, it was part of the PE class physical education class. You had to have a signed note from your parents, otherwise you couldn't take the course. Now today, sex education is a part of the general curriculum in schools. As a result, kids are better informed. They are smarter about family planning, contraception, STDs, venereal disease, all kinds of stuff. They have more intelligence about that and can make an informed decision as to what they want to do or what, what not to do, et cetera. Um, that's what we need because the taboo has been lifted off of, of sex education. We need to lift that taboo off of the discussion of race in church and in the schools. You brought up a really good point that I want to get real quick is money. Uh, people aren't going to pay for what they don't want to hear. How much 
uh, of an influence can we have with how and where we spend our money? Because I believe over a hundred million dollars was donated to Black Lives Matter, and you know that has yet to be discussed of how that's going to be allocated. But uh, people are donating because they believe that this can help. Uh, how much can we uh, make change with where we spend our money? Okay. Uh, well, you know, when you say it was given to Black Lives Matter, who, who was it given to? Well, that, that I wasn't going to go there. I was just, you know, that that's that's the that, that's See, that's the, the problem when you don't have an organization, question. right? That's the million dollar question. Um, but right. you know, that people said they were donating. Uh, they said there were different organizations regarding mental health. Um, yeah, you know, food for uh, after school kids, uh, etc. So that's what was said. Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen some of that. I just saw where some singer uh, or act, sorry, actress was was donating twenty five thousand uh, dollars to Black Lives Matter or something. I'm thinking, okay, well, exactly who are you giving it to? Which chapter? Who's in charge? How right. is it going to be distributed? Celebrities have been given a million. I think uh, the uh, um, Jack Dorsey of Twitter gave five million or ten million dollars mm-hmm. uh, to Black Lives Matter initiative. So. Um, you know, the hope is that it's going to benefit and actually go towards said causes. Right. Uh, it is not known yet. But for what I'm trying to uh, get your opinion on is um, where we spend our money. Because you know, I know for me in particular, I do like to shop with a lot of Black-owned businesses. Sure. Um, and, you know, so how, how, how much of an impact of our, where our money is being going can help our situation? I think um, toward, towards better educational institutions, towards better schools, uh, get better, more up-to-date books and computers for kids, things like that so they can learn. Um, that, I think, will go a long ways. Um, that, that, that's where I would allocate the money that I'm giving so that it would go towards education. Uh, that, that is the best weapon, the best tool. I mean, somebody else has said it a long time ago, information is power, and, uh, and it sure is. Uh, that's where I would wanna see my money go if I was gonna donate it. Um, you know, nothing wrong with spending it in, uh, in Black-owned businesses to, to, to strengthen up that economy, things like that. Um, I don't mind spending it in, in other places, uh, other people's businesses as well. Uh, that way they, they will reciprocate and spend it in my place of business because mm-hmm. we, we need to bring unity. You know, I want to see Asians spending their money in black owned businesses. I want to see white people spending their money in black owned businesses you know, and so forth and so on. But it must be reciprocal in order for it, in order for it to happen. But, uh, but pumping it up in, initially. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't have any problem with that. And I think, I think, you know, that should be done. Strengthen that economy and then invite other people in as well, and then put money in their economy so that it goes around and it strengthens up the whole. That's what we need. Um, and you know, you brought up another, you didn't bring it up, but it reminded me of uh, when you say this money being allocated. Um, when we hear this, you know, defund the police and reform the police and all that kind of stuff. I'd like to see, you know, by defunding the police does not mean that you're taking away their salaries. They're still going to get paid the same amount of money. It's just that the extra money that was always put in the budget 
you know, for their barbecues and, and charitable games, baseball games or whatever that they do to raise money for boys and girls clubs and all that kind of stuff uh, is being taken away um, and reallocated. Some people want it reallocated towards uh, mental health uh, because a lot of uh, a lot of mental health people get arrested for, for loitering on the streets and whatever else. I say no. I said, don't put, I said, take it away. Don't put it towards mental health. Get that money from somewhere else and, and, and let mental health deal with that. Um, the mental health people definitely need some help, but that money can come from other places. That money you take away, put it towards, I say three things. One, um, hire some behavioral psychologists to come in and redesign the tests that are being given for people applying to become police officers. Uh, each department all across the country, they all have their own separate little tests that, that vary from place. Here where we are, where I am, um, they have the polygraph, they have a written and an oral test. And some of the questions are, uh, have you ever used cocaine? Uh, do you have a drinking problem? Uh, have you have you smoked marijuana? How do you feel about homosexuality? Why are they asking about homosexuality? Well, because, you know, if you're going to be dealing with the public, there are people out there who are homosexuals. Are you going to treat them any differently than you treat somebody else? That's important to know, because you might not be a good candidate if you're going to be out there gay bashing or something, right? But there is no question no question on the test about race. You know, do you have any racial bias? That should be on the test. All right. Um, there are tests that can be given to determine if someone has racial bias. These behavioral psychologists know how to know how to word those tests. In fact, Harvard Harvard uh, University has a um, implicit bias test. Um, Take that, shape it up for the uh, police, and have these uh, behavioral psychologists design the test and administer the test. And if someone is showing racial bias, don't hire them, or else give them a desk job. Don't put them out there on the street with people. Right? Um, like the FBI, they have what, what are called criminal profilers. These are like behavioral psychologists. They have studied hundreds of of cases of serial killers, serial rapists, bank robbers, whatever. And they can, they can tell you the profile of somebody who's most likely to commit this kind of crime. And, you know, you know, d divorced white male, age 40, you know, fits in this certain category. Well, that comes from a lot of studying. Those behavioral psychologists get them to design a racial test for police officers pay them. That's where that money should go to that you defund. That's part of it. Another part of it where it should go is to establish a national police registry. Because here's what happens. Um, police don't have a national registry for when cops get fired or get, or get busted for some kind of misconduct. Right. They just go to another. They just go to another department, start the same crap all over again. Same thing with uh, with Catholic priests, you know, uh, they, they molest little boys or something like that. Not all of them, of course, but I'm talking about the ones who do. Mm -hmm. um, 
they, they don't get uh, in, in trouble. They simply get shifted around to another, to another parish and the behavior starts again. And then they get move again. And then 40 years later, you find out, you know, father so-and-so did this to me when, that, when I was 10 years old and I'm now 50 years old or something. Mm-hmm. And then they try to address it, but it's too late. Mm-hmm. If you're a sex offender, a registry, a child sex offender, so you molest some, some kid in New York City and, and you get busted for it, your name goes on the child sex offender list, the National Registry. So you go out to Los Angeles from New York, you try to get a job at, um, at uh, Mary Had Little Lamb Kindergarten or, or the Cub Scouts, they see your name on there, uh-uh. We need that for the police. So that behavior cannot be continued. That's where the money should go in terms of the police. And the police should not have to deal with, with the mental health issues. They're not trained for that. They should deal with crime. So let, you know, let, let the mental health people who are trained for that deal with the people like that. If, if there becomes a, a, a violent situation or, or a criminal armed situation with the mental health people, then you call the police in. Just like, you know, if I, if I see a rabid dog out here running around, uh, I'm not gonna call the police, I'm gonna call animal, animal control. control. Exactly. So that, that's where I think, you know, money should, should be spent. What's the third one? Oh, um, I forgot now off the top of my head, but, uh, but I'm so concerned about, about them not being rehired to repeat their behavior. Right. And it, it was the third one that I thought about a second ago when, when I was thinking about it. Um, there was the test the registry the registry and it's not kind to me as soon as i get training training some say that training doesn't training is a crock of bull okay that's a crock of bull every time some white police officer shoots some black person 40 times for holding his cell phone oh you know we have to increase sensitivity training no you know He's trained, the se- he, he's trained the same way. It was his choice to shoot that black guy 40 times, but not shoot the white guy for holding the cell phone. Mm-hmm. What, what does training have to do with that? So you're telling me you, you, you were trained to shoot a black guy 40 times for holding his wallet or his cell phone. The training is the same. It was your choice to shoot that man holding his wallet or his cell phone, or shoot him in the back as he's running away from you. Mm-hmm. Okay, no. Training is not going to fix that. You know, you, you need to learn respect for people as human beings. Oh, I know the third one was. Um, but yeah, uh, um, training does not, fix, does not fix that. You know, that's, that's your own decision. Because we all are trained the same. They are trained to shoot at center mass these days. You draw your gun, center mass is right here. If you have to use it, boom, you take them out, all right? So why um, are, are, are more black people, like I said, going to their grave in, in a situation like that where white people are either going to jail or going home? And, and some of them go via Burger King. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with training. Training is just, just a word to, to appease the public you know, uh, allocate a million dollars towards sensitivity training. 
Uh, okay, the third one was this. We need to establish some kind of um, mechanism for police officers. And let me explain. Usually we hear about two types of police officers. We hear about good cops and we hear about bad cops. There's a third category that isn't talked about very often. I'll get to that in a second. Um, we all know what a bad cop does. A good cop will not do those things, but the good cop will turn a blind eye and not tell on the bad cop because of that blue code of silence, mm -hmm. right? So- I think I know where you're going with this. Huh? I think I know where you're going with this. Right. Continue. Okay, so um, the third category, which is the minority category, when I say minority, I mean in terms of numbers, not the skin color, um, is the honest cop. The honest cop will tell. And, and in doing so, the honest cop jeopardizes his or her own safety from their fellow cops. Because nobody likes a snitch. Except, you know, if, if this person is snitching information to you so you can bust somebody, then you're okay. But you don't snitch on, on your fellow officers. And if you don't want to participate, that's fine. You don't participate, but you don't tell on me. And then who do you tell? You tell the brass. And what do they do? They leak it. They leak it back down to the street because they're not gonna bust you. Because you know what, 20 years ago when they were on the street, they were doing the same thing. Right. So why are they gonna bust you know, officer so-and-so? Because he, he uh, used excessive force or took a bribe or whatever. So we need a mechanism Oh, and, and then and then what happens is this. They, you know, when 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 an officer gets in trouble, the uh, the PIO, public information officer, um, or the chief or whoever comes on the news and says, uh, either either no comment or uh, he followed proper police procedure, proper police protocol. But then in the rare instance where officer so and so got busted and was convicted of the crime. Then they say, oh, well, you know, in a department this large, you know, we're bound to have a few bad apples. It's always a few bad apples, right? Uh-uh. There are more bad apples than there are good apples. Why would I say that? So am I saying there are more bad cops than good cops? Yes, I am saying that. Because if there were so many good cops, wouldn't they get rid of the few bad apples? Wouldn't they complain and say, hey, look, I joined this police force to do the right thing. I don't want my badge being tarnished by officer so-and-so who's doing this and doing that. Why don't they all pile together and say, you know, you all need to fire these people. They are ruining our reputation. It just takes one bad cop to ruin the reputation of the whole department. Look at Derek Chauvin. Now nobody wants to trust the Minneapolis police, right? So this man, had 18 complaints against him in 19 years, if somebody had perhaps listened to one of those 18 voices and come down on Derek Chauvin, maybe they could have corrected his behavior and George Floyd would still be alive. They had 18 opportunities to address complaints. Now, there were probably a lot more, a lot more um, violations that didn't get reported 
but not everybody always goes through the procedure of reporting to internal affairs, et cetera. Just like, you know, when, when somebody says, you know, we had 43 rapes in Washington, D.C. last year, there were probably more, mm-hmm. but some women just don't want to go through it, right? Okay, so you didn't listen 18 times. When a, police, when a policeman or a person becomes a police officer, they are given a 007 license, which is a license to kill. They are given the license to use deadly force. If you have a license to drive, I'm sure, can you imagine having, still having your license if you got 18 DWIs? <laughs> Not at all, I'd be in jail. You'd be in, you'd be in jail after, after, after the first or second one. Right. And your license will, be, will get uh, first suspended after the first one, and second one, you probably get it revoked, all right? If you were a doctor working in Johns Hopkins Hospital up there in Baltimore, University of Baltimore Hospital, and you had 18 complaints of malpractice, that hospital would do very well to get rid of you before they get sued. So why does this man uh, have, have 18 complaints and not one of them addressed? And he's still walking around with the license to kill. It wasn't a question of if it happens, which is a matter of when it happens. So we need a mechanism for these honest cops to be able to report bad behavior on other cops without being identified like a whistleblower kind of thing. Right. Uh, and, and so they would not get re- uh, repercussions and, uh, and ramifications. Just, just like, you know, if the cops can't solve a crime, what do they do? They put up some things saying, hey, you know, if you have any information, you can call this number, leave, you know, leave it anonymously, you'll get a reward, whatever the thing is. We don't need to know who you are, just leave us information. Uh, cops need that kind of thing also for their own self-protection because they have to rely on each other for protection when they go into a dangerous situation. But if they're known as a snitch, that, that backup does not come or it comes very slowly, thus endangering that police officer. Did you ever see a movie called Serpico? Uh, no, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Check it out. Frank Serpico, NYPD officer who was an honest cop. And he, and he reported the bad cops and they tried to kill him. They shot him. Well, we uh, we had that situation up here with uh, it's, it's still going on with uh, Detective Souter. Um, he was supposed to testify against uh, five police officers for uh, racketeering. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of days before he was supposed to testify, he got killed and rolled a suicide and the partner wasn't there. Then a the guy was shot with his own gun. And uh-huh. you know, you're just uh, un- unfortunately, these things happen. And, you know, I, I agree. We need a support system for these police officers who want to do the right thing and they shouldn't be punished for doing the right thing. Uh, you shouldn't lose, use, lose your life for that, for wanting uh, to, to be better. Right. And, you know, and we need, um, and in Baltimore, at least uh, I can tell you back, uh, maybe it's changed since then, I don't know. But uh, back in 1988, there was a um, civilian review board in Baltimore, but it was, was manipulated by the police. So, you know, the, the Baltimore City Police have always been corrupt. Mm-hmm. Always. With, with racists on there, like, like Bob White, for example. Bob White, you know, went on to become one of my best friends. That's why I, I got his uniform, 
police uniform and his robe and hood. Mm-hmm. Um, but the civilian review board was established. So these cases of police misconduct, especially big ones, the evidence would go to the, would go to the uh, civilian review board. So it would look like an independent review is being done. Now, here's the thing. The, the police would only give the civilian review board just enough evidence so that they would find that there was not enough evidence against the police. Mm-hmm. Sort of like you, you've heard how a, a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich before a grand jury. He only gives the grand jury just enough evidence for them to vote the way that he wants it to go. Mm-hmm. That's what the police were doing. They were only giving the civilian review board, holding back important stuff, and just giving a little bit where they determine, you know, there's really not enough evidence to convict this police officer. Mm-hmm. So then the police will say, look, you know, we conducted a, an outside investigation and they determined there wasn't enough evidence against officer so-and-so. Mm-hmm. So we need outside reviews, but it needs to be equitable. We want to see the same evidence that internal affairs is seeing as a civilian review board. And how do you have, listen, I know a lot of police officers. I know a lot of great ones. I know a lot of honest ones, but I also know a lot of bad ones. And I've helped get rid of some bad ones. Um, How do you have internal affairs? And there are internal affairs people who will do their job, um, but then they also incur the wrath of the the ones when they they bust them. When you go to court, if you are, let's say you're a doctor and you're being um, sued for, uh, for, or prosecutors trying to to take you down for malpractice, or you're a police officer and the prosecutor is trying to take you down, right? The first thing your defense attorney does and the prosecutor does is they do a voir dire on the, on the, on the jury, on the potential jury. The prosecutor asks, you know, if, 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 the, if the defendant is a police officer, the, the prosecutor says, you know, is anybody you know, in, uh, in here a police officer? Are you married to a police officer? Do you have any police officers in your family? Do you work for the police department? All that kind of stuff. You want to make sure that you remove anybody who may have some bias in favor of the police. Or if it's a doctor, is anybody in here, you know, in the medical field? You know, do you work for a hospital, blah, blah, blah. Anybody in your family, you know, work for a physician, whatever because you don't want anybody to show favoritism because this guy is a doctor. So, and then people get up and they excuse themselves. That's why you always have alternate jurors waiting in the back room to come and fill in so you have 12. Mm -hmm. You want to be judged by a jury of your peers, unbiased. So now how do you let internal affairs conduct an investigation? They're not... (laughs) They're not unbiased. You're a police officer, they're a police officer. So chances are they're going to um, pass you, right. you know, you know let, you, let you get out. It'd be like ha- having the prisoners, you know, judge the warden. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So that needs to change, or, or there need to be some, some kind of rules in place where uh, an outside uh, review board can also work in tandem with uh, internal affairs so that you have a parallel investigation going on. But you know, you have to train the civilian review board because you know, they're not police officers. They don't know all police uh, procedure and stuff like that. So you gotta train them 
and proper police procedure so that they understand what rights the officer has and what rights he doesn't have and what rights the civilian has so that way they can make you know a good clear decision you know and what the laws are and then you and then you have that investigation going on man it just seems uh it's so much easier to just break the system and just start over it just you know it's a lot you know that's going on a lot that's happening but you know i hope you know of course what you're doing has been fantastic you know I, i'm waiting to see you get that nobel peace prize yet i don't know oh, what they're waiting for i don't know what they're waiting for man but mr davis i appreciate you being on with the baltimore guys it's been a pleasure talking to you i can't thank you my pleasure time. my pleasure anytime you want to talk just let me know man i'm and happy thank- i'm happy to learn whatever i can from you and other people and um you know, if, if you if you think of somebody you think might interest me who has a different perspective, let me know. I'm always willing. To, my, my mind is open. I'm willing to learn. That's how I got as far as I've gotten by listening to other people and learning. And that's what we need in this world. So thank you again. And thank you guys for listening and watching the Baltimore guys. Uh, if you liked, please like, share and subscribe. And we'll catch you in the next one. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Take care.